0: Okay, welcome back. For those of you that don't know, I'm Colin Thompson. I'm here with Anthony back and Julian Brito. And today we're going to be talking about tech investing in Asia. Where are the key opportunities in the next decade? So why don't we like just like, you know, just discuss that topically, you know, uh, Julie and I have been in Hong Kong for God, to too many years in a way so I, I guess you know we know asia pretty well um i would say at least like geographically you know i think the big push is going to be gba which is considered to be the greater bay area um so there's a lot of hong kong that's kind of seeding into to southern parts of china for you know greater opportunities and there's a kind of political integration there singapore is um is by far you know taking the lead in terms of um funding fostering and cultivating um, early stage startups and the fund management and uh, you know investing ecosystem but ultimately it seems like that money is really just flowing into Indonesia so every investor that's supposed to be investing in Singapore is really just investing in you know Indonesia and trying to capitalize on you know that large market space but um you know uh, uh what are your thoughts on when, what's been happening in the region uh, uh, Julian
1: I think it's been really interesting. I think, you know, and I think in particular with with COVID, it sort of adds an interesting element uh, to what's been happening, Um, particularly early on. You know, we saw Asia react particularly quickly to what was happening with COVID um, and has been able to sort of open back up uh, a little bit more easily than than the rest of the world. And I think that that poses an advantage uh, for the region. On, on top of everything else that it that it has going for them, I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting time. i, I I've certainly missed being out there. I think I, I'm a little bit more detached now being in the u k uh, not as you know sort of boots on the ground, having visibility of what's what's happening. but I think that you know Singapore is definitely still leading from the front. Um, there's been a lot of interesting activity there, but there's just so much opportunity for growth across all the markets in the region uh, you know not just in terms of size but I think in terms of if you look at Vietnam in terms of the education piece you know such a strong solid um, technology workforce uh, you know coming out from there there's a lot of interesting innovations that that can sp- spawn from that um, but I'm not I'm not as active and I, I probably should be in terms of staying up to date on, on what's really happening but there's yeah there's there's certainly a lot of Potential that I see uh, coming out from there.
0: Well, what do you think? You know, I mean, I have some comments about this, but what do you think is holding the region back? Right, because it seems like it's fertile in terms of you know very highly educated um, uh, populations, right? Because the concept of Southeast Asia, like again, I said before, is really a, it's a really you know five or six different countries and cultures. It's not a monolithic place like the United States. So you really have to attack these markets in different ways. But there is a common theme amongst them. And it's really there's a deep value in education and accomplishment. But what do you like, you know, from, you know, you're, you know, living in Asia, like, what, what do you fit, say is the thing that's holding back, like, you know, the, you know, the different ecosystems in the region?
1: I think there's, I think it's, you know, kind of to your point about Southeast Asia being, you know, it's it's a region, but really they're all they're there different nuances in each market. Uh, regulatory ch- differences that uh, companies have to adapt to. I think that's probably the the most difficult thing for, for new companies or even established companies, you know, breaking out into different markets. It's that localization effect. Um, mm. You know, it's not always a, sort of a common language, uh, you know, to be able to tap into the entire market as a whole. It's, you know, and I sort of look at um, – You know, Uber as a growth model, I think that something like that is a really interesting process and something that works really well for the region, Uh, you know, setting up Mm -hmm. dedicated growth teams in each market and sort of giving them, Mm -hmm. I guess, sort of a sandbox to be able to experiment with different ways of growing within that market, as opposed to sort of following a standardized sort of franchise model. Um, I think that that's Mm -hmm. not something that can be done, you know, particularly for companies coming in from overseas, like, let's just repeat what we, what worked here. In Southeast Asia and do it as a whole, that's just not gonna work.
0: Yeah, that used to be the common idea, right? It's like, you know, everybody in Asia is the same. You know, so we just you know, run the same playbook and it just you know, people just I think there was ten years of just absolute and utter failure of like American companies trying to go into like say China and getting just completely destroyed because they just have a lack of cultural sensitivity. You know, so I, I definitely see that. It's gotten a lot better, but uh You know, from my perspective, I just go there just seems to be uh, still this kind of like there is like a very kind of long arm of American culture that like permeates a lot of different things. And I think the kind of like the Silicon Valley playbook of growth and uh, investment and, uh, you know, uh, business culture, it works for that particular ecosystem in American culture. But you know, when people try to translate that or, or or transport that to different markets, it really just doesn't work. You know, um, not only just from the startups' perspective, the founders' perspective, but for the for the the invest investment inclination as well too. Like the investment style of you know the well-heeled or the elite or the VCs in in Asia is very different from the United States, and they just have a different kind of sentiment. Um, you know, and then these like startups, you know, try to kind of play that kind of American style, you know, uh, lean startup methodology, and it just really kind of clashes, you know, so it, it, it seems to be to me like, you know, there isn't a common language, a startup growth VC language in Southeast Asia that works specifically for this region. It seems to be like, you know, there's a lack of identity in terms of what the actual process should be to kind of generate these types of organizations that ultimately have an impact on the economy, right? So, I mean, for me, that's the kind of, I, as someone who's kind of worn two hats, you know, in the region, that's kind of the thing that I've seen, you know, so. Yeah, I want to, why, why do you think right, that is? Go ahead. I think, you know, like, you know, I think, you know, how wealth was created in Southeast Asia was primarily through things like, um, manufacturing then manufacturing into um, things like real estate and you know that was a, really the rise of globalization and the outsourcing of those types of you know industries to to this region and I think there's a specific kind of management style um, that goes with that kind of um, business success and then ultimately you know when you become successful you become very myopic to other forms of you know um, doing things And that kind of trickles down to, you know, the investment culture. So, like, you'll get investors who, like, are looking for things that are like, you know, buying a building, (laughs) you know? It just, like, doesn't work that way, you know? And, like, the appetite for risk is very different, right? And then, you know, uh, there seems to be this thing where it's like if it comes from America and it works in America, it must be good for Asia and it must work over here. And in some cases it does, right, because there's just little infrastructure. But, you know, um, like there's very few if any um you know very local homegrown and very you know market specific companies that have you know emerged from this kind of technological um, rise however i would say that the ones that do and do attach to that have been wildly successful and are very very difficult to topple right i mean i would say like you know something like a tencent you know in china really in a lot of ways was more innovative than, you know, the kind of rise of social media and chat in America, yeah. you know, so the Americans are ultimately looking at Tencent as, as something to copy, you know, you know, but there's very few of those. And I think that there needs to be more of that, their own sense of, you know, their own North star, their own, our own sense of like, um, you know, what it is to be a company or organization that's rich in the world and what works and to be kind of, you know, you know, um, you know, uh, steadfast in that, you know, so i want to move on though sorry um you know uh, as a deep tech podcast you know we, there's uh, areas that we should be covering which is mostly um you know in one aspect is blockchain and cryptocurrency but i pulled this up just uh you know almost as soon as it came off the press is that uh, kucoin you know uh, uh, quite a large uh cryptocurrency exchange in singapore well, with very large backing uh recently got hacked all of their hot wallets like all of them all their hot wallets got hacked for 150 million across a variety of different altcoins, coins, Ethereum and Bitcoin. And I mean, I never like. I mean, that's like just a crappy thing to happen, but I just figured to myself, like if you're that well-funded and you're dealing with cryptocurrency, uh, I mean the security, it, like I, I'm wondering how that actually happened without, you know, or, you know without them knowing or without them being able to stop that that is a very significant amount of money um, um but i don't know if you guys are, you know if you guys are well versed in that or or what you've heard about it but what are your thoughts in terms of yet another exchange being hacked by like i don't think it was like a like a hacker group i think it was like one guy yeah it's i mean it's scary that
1: this is still yeah. happening you know this i it's i i frightened to even look up the total number of, of, of um, you know, in terms of dollar value of hacks that have happened um, and how many people, you know, this, because KuCoin, a, it's a big, it's a big exchange, right? I think, you know, a lot of people would kind of look to that as a sort of safe place. But I guess, you know, when it comes to, to cryptocurrency, there really isn't a safe space sp- other than keeping it yourself uh, locked away.
2: if you keep your wallet if you keep a hot wallet you're just asking and you keep your money on an exchange you're you're, you're asking for it really uh, there's just i think there's no cybersecurity is constantly evolving and criminals are always going to come up with new ways to hack an exchange even if Uh, An exchange has just recently uh, upgraded all their security systems and everything like that. The next people, are criminals are always often a step ahead and they're working all the time, coming up with new things. So it's a constant evolution when it comes to cybersecurity. And as I said, again, like today to keep your crypto in a hot wallet is just, just asking for it, unfortunately.
0: It's fine that you bring that up, right? Because I my question now that I'm asking is, you know, how much onus is really on the consumer to really understand this and to know that, like, hey, you know, the question really is, is why were so why was so much money um in you know, hot wallets? I mean, like these are wallets that are online, right? Why was so much money in them? Like, okay, let's say there wasn't a lot of money, let's say there was a thousand dollars. You know, worth of you know cryptocurrency in each wallet. So that's a lot of wallets. So somebody had to have gone in there and like skimmed like hundreds of thousands of wallets, right, to get that kind of money. And I'm going, that is like, you know, on the consumer side, you know, crypto's been around long enough that, and the community knows so much, uh, so to you know be able to, you know, tell people that you shouldn't be holding your crypto in exchange, you should have it in cold storage, right? And only go on there to like actually make a transaction. You know, so that's one. I go, what, like why what is it that's lacking on the consumer side in terms of their knowledge? I mean, you know, there's a lack of like financial literacy in general, but I mean, like you know, there's a lack of kind of crypto literacy. That's one. And then two, I go, how is it possible, right, that someone got in there, whether it was internally or externally, and took that much, that fast from that many different wallets? I go, you know uh you know where was the regulatory control in terms of you know uh how much can be insured um uh what are the um financial and security um regulations and policies that are in place and enforced by the regulatory bodies that would ensure that those things don't happen it seems like there's a, a gap on both sides and so for a lot of people going into like or, or trying to understand or participate in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space I go, these are all things that, like, um, you know, for some reason, uh, it, it should deter people, but it just seems like, you know, more and more people are interested in it. Or, or are they, is everybody just a poser in, in the sense that, like, you know, they love crypto and they love blockchain and they want to be a part of it, but really it's just because it's a cool thing to do, but they're not participating in it. And if they do, they just don't really know what they're doing. I don't
2: know. I think a lot of it comes, the, the fact that, so many people are still keeping their their crypto on hot in hot wallets on exchanges is it comes down to usability and convenience and yeah you know it takes first and responsibility you know i i would maybe some people think hey i'll just it's easier to keep it on this exchange i'm not responsible for it or they're like i can't be bothered i don't want to go and go out and have to get a cold wallet or write down my seed phrase and keep it somewhere. Mm. Unless you solve those issues that people are just going to naturally go to, especially if they're not familiar with the dire security situation, people are just going to keep on taking the easiest route and just going, Hey, I'll just keep it here. I bought it. I'll just keep it here on the wallet. Easy. Done. Forget about it. I'll come back tomorrow, check the price and my wallet will be there. It's their problem, but that's not the case.
0: Yeah, I just go, like, I'm wondering, like, I just go, you know, why can't there be, like, just like a, like, literally a representation of that currency in the wallet, and then everything is stored in the cold wallet? Like, unless it's being moved other places, right? Like, I mean, I guess that's an operational issue that I I could never fully understand. But I just go, you know, from the regulatory level, like, in order for them to be operating in Singapore as a cryptocurrency exchange, they, they should have things that are in place. And probably did, but they should have things that are in place that would really make that challenging. And then there's got to be a little bit more literacy and understanding on the people that are using these things. I mean, like leaving leaving cryptocurrency in a hot wallet on an exchange is just yeah. Like, I mean, I don't blame that. I don't. I, I don't blame yeah. that guy going to Kuko. He probably heard like he goes, "There's that much money in hot wallets. Let me take the chance." <laughs> me, yeah. Right. Because these it's guys are suckers. Like
2: it's kind of like walking through the bad part of town, wherever you live, with a huge sign saying "I'm rich" and I got like five hundred yeah, million bucks like, in my pocket, with
0: like gold like, chains and Rolex watches and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> just like you're walking through like the barrio or something, you know. And it's just yeah. like not uh, an idea. What are
2: the what are the
0: repercussions for Qcoin? Are there any repercussions? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I I don't know who the CEO of that company is, but like I would I'm not I would not be feeling good, <laughs> right? But I mean like, if the, I, if this
2: was a non if this was a non crypto company and I was whatever, if it was hmm. a financial institution and like 150 mil just went missing, what what's the what are the repercussions for this? Like
0: well I can't kind of think of it like I guess you a know,
2: financial institutions that it's insured on a, in a financial institution, I think too,
0: Yeah. to some extent. Right? Because I think, you know, I mean, the financial institutions went through this kind of phase, too. It was more like in the 1800s, you know, before, you know, before the Great Depression and at the Great Depression and before the Great Depression. But you can think of it like, you know, you know, the Wild Wild West when, like, you know, someone comes in with, like, a bandana and, like, you know, has, like, a, a Remington six-shooter and says, give me all the money in the bank. You know, and you know, just steals money out of the banks and cops on his horse and rides away. You know, but that happens so many times where they're just like, yeah, we're gonna make sure that you know people can't rob banks anymore. Like, how many times have you heard of somebody robbing a bank these days? Yeah, like, not often. Not often, right? Because that's just like that's just like it's like too lowbrow now. You know, but now it's like you know people are sophisticated. And like the way they rob a bank is to like you know drain hot wallets worth of worth of cryptocurrency. I don't know, $150 million is serious money in a small place like Singapore. I can't imagine that that guy um, was feeling very good about uh, what happened and, you know, what he put in place and his investors. And I like that. It must be just a complete shit show. You got uh, your investors. You got your employees. You got your customers. You got the regulators. I'm, you know, hopefully it wasn't anything nefarious that happened. But uh, I, uh, if, if, if it wasn't, I, I wish him. Godspeed so that he can get through this and hopefully you know, put his life back together because that's pretty challenging. I'm gonna move on, guys. Um, uh, we started off the conversation about uh, investment opportunities around Asia. We, I brought up uh, Indonesia, but there's, uh, I hope I don't really kind of kill this name, it's Buku Warong, uh, gets new funding from Stripe. I'm assuming it's Stripe Capital uh, for a company called, the payment processor called Paymongo. $12 million Series A. Uh, I have my own opinions about payments and the payments industry in general, but I uh, I think this is a good deal for Stripe, and I'm assuming it's Stripe Capital, because they're essentially just funding one of their, their, their largest clients, right? Because they're using Stripe as their pay factor to do all this stuff, and it's working. So why not give them a little bit more money so they can expand that out? Because you know what? That twelve million dollars is going right back to Stripe anyway. <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are on that, though.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. I think you know China has sort of gone through that payment process where you know everybody, every mom and pop shop is now not taking cash. Even the noodle shops down the street, everybody is just paying mm. digitally, and I think that's not yet happened across Southeast Asia. Um, but it's starting to happen as people start to notice, particularly now with COVID, how much easier it's going to be for them uh, you know, to have, they've sort of been reluctant to, to digitize their, their businesses, the smaller merchants. But I think that that's starting to accelerate. And companies like Paymongo uh, are definitely going to help accelerate that process. Uh, and yeah, for Stripe, it's, 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 a, it's sort of a win-win for them, help one of their biggest clients in the region. Uh, grow their business. And ultimately, you know, they probably end up getting a lot of that money back uh, through the transaction fees.
0: Yeah, a big win for Sh- uh, for Stripe, you know, because they essentially just got uh, you know, back in the day, I used to work at Blockbuster Video. I was a film school student. And, you know, the big deal was to be like Quentin Tarantino. And, you know, you'd work front customer service retail. And I worked at Blockbuster Video, but you know, to me, the new customer service or the new retail is being, <laughs> uh, you know, a payment processor for Stripe, <laughs> or or a drop shipper for Amazon. You know, it's almost like it's the same function, but it's just been digitized in a way, and uh, you know, it's at a larger scale. You know, so um, that's how I kind of say. But to your point, you know, um, you know. Uh, the digitalization of payments and making it easy for merchants and people to pay around, uh, you know, the Philippines is uh, is obviously a big opportunity. I just wonder why, you know, I just wonder why like the major financial institutions in that region of the world really ha- like are abdicating this this aspect of the the financial chain, the payment chain, to these startups. I go, it must be the I assume that it must be quite easy. You know, for an institution with really great resources and probably like a lack of like a lack of, you know, legacy infrastructure to be able to implement these things and to be able to have a really wide penetration across that, that country. And I, I, it baffles me why, you know, um, this is kind of being outsourced to startups. I don't know if you guys have any.
1: I think that, you know, I can kind of speak to that a little bit in terms of my experience in the insurance space. I think it, it comes down mm. to allocation of resources. You know, these kind of small business mm. merchants, it's just they don't have the resources to be able to, to, to do that. Uh, mm. You know, kind of if I look back at my experience working in the insurance space, we were in a very niche industry in terms of offering high-end medical insurance, uh, something that would be very mm. easy for an AXA or an Allianz to to do, but they just didn't have the resources to be able to offer the personal touch that somebody buying a high-end uh, insurance company uh, plan would want, you know, being able to, mm. to guide them through the claim process, being able to guide them when they're at the hospital in terms of understanding all the documents and the lingo. I think it comes down to that, you know, for, for these big part sort of industry players is, you know, they don't have the time to talk to these small business owners. <laughs> yeah, it's just like We're they've so got rich. Bigger, in so their big mind, got bigger fish to, fish to fry, which is a mistake in my in my opinion. Um, mm. But that's I think that's that's the way they look at it.
2: Yeah, I also yeah. I think it's
1: it, they don't have
2: the the systems in place, and maybe they haven't invested in innovation that they don't want to bother. They don't have the systems that they can. That makes it worth profitable for them to go and offer uh, like a micro loan of 50 bucks to some guy in Mm. in in, in, in indonesia like it's Mm. not worth it for them um so i i don't why they haven't done that as julian said i think it's a mistake they probably think let's stay with the the more profitable customers i don't know the five one five or five percent of the population that Take bigger loans and things like that, but I think it's a big mistake because I remember reading somewhere that there were a hundred, there's 110 or 120 million um, unbanked citizens in Indonesia.
0: Mm. That's a large portion of just like
2: dying for um, financial services, and why on earth the, the banks in Indonesia or wherever they're not jumping on that opportunity to invest the time to make new products and services that can address these i mean basically the whole country and make a profit at a profit i don't know why they're not doing that it doesn't make well, sense
0: and the other thing too is like i'm going uh you know like i don't know who was in that round with uh you know with uh you know paymongo or wrong I think Paymongo, Paymongo Series A was led by Stripe, but I'm going, to, I'm asking myself, well, where were the the Singaporean VCs and the Filipino VCs and like where were they? Like why is why is Stripe leading that investment? Right, like what is Stripe seeing that the the investors that are in that region and probably know those founders in that company? What are they not seeing? That's a good
2: question, right? The I'm, other, kind of I'm, right. I'm reading the the other investors in the Bukuaran deal included probably SoftBank. Uh, <laughs> yeah. DST what? Global Soma DST, Capital, okay. Yeah. So huge. so my Capital and 20 VC.
0: So DST um, is like, you know, they're huge, you're right. Like again, but like, yeah, I just go, you know. Maybe it's like, okay, it's the ticket size, but I just go, like, there's a lot of VCs in, in, in Indonesia, and there's, like, there's okay. a lot in Singapore. Okay. I'm going, like, why, why is that not happening with those guys? Right? You know, is well, like, why is it, like, uh, you know, like, there's, like, that kind of foreign capital is going into these opportunities, and why is it not being supported by, like, you know, the, 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 the finance and venture community that's there in the region? I, like, that's, like, to me, it's completely bizarre. You know, but anyway, let's move on, guys, because we're running down on time. Uh, the tick tock drama. You know, we're coming up to this kind of presidential election. I just watched some of the I know I couldn't I watched five minutes of the debate. And I was just like, I cannot take this. But I think, you know, this kind of, you know, economic war is still going to wage on even if um, there is a change in leadership. But uh, tick tock seems to be the punching bag. Um. And they're doing everything possible to kind of, you know, you know, uh, thread the needle, you know, as a commercial organization, um, you know, to to continue on with their businesses without being a political football. But where do you guys lie? Where do you guys, given the information that's come out, where do you, where do you guys uh, stand on this, uh, you know, uh, TikTok, its sovereignty? And uh, it's uh, you know algorithms and you know the data that it's collecting and how that impacts countries around the world or consumers around the world. That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I that's a that's a really hard one to answer. I think I, I'm glad I'm not the CEO of TikTok. I can't imagine what mm. it must be like to be dealing with with this challenge on on both sides, uh, with the U.S. government yeah. and the Chinese government. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's really difficult to answer, you know, which way or how I feel about it. I think for me, I'm, uh, it's more sort of a, as an outsider. Uh, yeah, it's I'm not sure yet. I think that that's the answer. I, I don't know enough um, to be able to answer that properly. In terms of my own opinion, it's really. What TikTok is doing, is it a is it harmful? In its current state, I don't think so. I think it's I think it's an interesting product, and I think you know the the algorithm in itself um, and the user experience is pretty amazing compared to anything else that's come out um, mm-hmm. you know, in the last few years. I, I'm not an active user, but just you know within minutes of using it, the recommendations engine that comes through uh, and it's what pretty, comes of my feet it's pretty amazing.
0: slick and smooth
1: too. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. Yeah. You know, could it be used for other things? I don't really know. I'm I'm not enough of a knowledgeable in that area to to do that. I think you always have to be cautious with uh, a company that is is coming out of of China. Does it have national security concerns? I really don't know. Really, no idea about that.
0: But I'd love to, you know, what I found interesting, right, is that, like, you know, when all that stuff was going on, like, you know, there was a a decree that comes down from the Chinese government, which is that you can't export the algorithms, because the algorithms are protected under export custodies. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa. I mean, so like the debate was, we're not a Chinese company. We're not sharing any information with China. But if we want to do our own sale, we want to sell whatever we have uh, in the organization uh, freely, not freely, but I mean, you know, let's say it was it's a, f- a free decision to do so. The, the government could come in and, and say no you can't sell that because your ideas belong in China. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean, I find that bizarre, right? That's one. The other thing I find bizarre is you know it's just just you know to put a cor- a company you know in the in the uh, in the middle of like a you know making a political football is really just challenging. So I do understand like, you know, what you're saying about like the, the founder and the CEO, he's like, I just want to make people happy and have them dance. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, what is like, you know, really so threatening to your national security, right? Yeah. You're collecting data, you know, okay. Social media data, uh, profile data, like, you know, click data, you know, what you're interested in, but like, I don't see how that is going to like, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Crack into like you know the energy mainframe of the the, yeah. the, the 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 United States. You know it's just not happening, right? So it's kind of stupid. Like I think you know it's really a thinly a, a, like a thinly veiled proxy for like uh, TikTok's rise and how it's threatening the dominance of American social media and data, right? Like yeah. to me that's what it is, you know. But then to see people fighting over like a, a, like they're literally fighting over a short form video app <laughs> like, <laughs> are you kidding you yeah. have time for this you know like that's come on you know this is not hurting anybody right um that's that i don't know what do you what are your thoughts about this on uh, anthony
2: i think it's just part of a tit for tat between like trade war between china and america um
0: mm-hmm.
2: i mean china does ban a lot of stuff so, Dude, I mean, I know it's it's, it's, it's not this, this the founder of TikTok's, like, fault, but, you know, you can't get a lot of stuff in China, so. Um, like, yeah, I, I mean,
0: that begs the question, right? Like, why? Like, we know why, but Google does not operate in China. Facebook does not operate in China. Twitter does not operate in China. But at the same time, TikTok and WeChat and Alibaba, they can operate in America. Yeah yeah
2: I, I, exactly. that's another
0: thing i'm going like what that that doesn't seem right you know
2: yeah. so i mean so how can the the chinese governments for them to be kicking up a storm about this is like really hypocritical but yeah also i would argue that TikTok could be could be a national security threat as i would argue facebook is
0: yes, and a lot exactly. of other
2: platforms are yeah. exactly um, exactly the only difference is whereas facebook would i don't know have you have you seen that new documentary on netflix the social dilemma
0: yeah i want to watch that actually i want yeah, it. to it's kind
2: yeah. it's probably it's probably nothing you don't already know but it's really well done um mm. And it's quite shocking. Like It's really shocking.
0: I, I but, guess that begs the question, guys. Sorry to yeah. interrupt you. I'm going to just say it begs the question yeah, of, you know, maybe there needs to be some more international cooperation on data standards. Yeah.
2: I mean, this is the you new, know. this is the new, like, the new
0: economy. Like, yeah. The, the, the cyber rules.
2: It's cyber, yeah. You can, you can easily. I'm not saying TikTok is controlled by the Chinese government. I don't know. Mm. But they oh, could, so. if they have all this information on different users, they can build an algorithm that shows them all sorts of stuff that gradually chips mm-hmm. away at yeah. and, and makes people form new beliefs and kicks up a storm. Maybe shows them mm-hmm. more content about um, protests Things in the US that maybe people go, yeah. make people divide people. You know? Yeah. So you can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the sort of more optimistic view to that that i found quite interesting, uh, watching a recent video uh, from Scott Galloway of, you know, talking about algorithmic commerce. Uh, you yeah, know, way, I thought it would too. <laughs> you know, finding a way, the way that TikTok has, has made it so seamless in terms of its recommendation engine, in terms of watching videos that you like, building that into a, a commerce platform like Walmart or Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. where you know the recommendation is so seamlessly integrated into your your daily life and i think that's the sort of more optimistic view of, of what tiktok is doing uh you know and i think that a lot of a lot of other companies are gonna are, are probably already working uh you know on on ways to bring that into oh, the yeah. platform i think that's that's going to be really interesting to see how that develops with you know amazon walmart and you know other mm-hmm. online commerce shopping experiences but, the
0: tick-tock tick of e-commerce
1: yeah it's now going to be the TikTok of instead of the uber
0: of <laughs> yeah. yeah right and I mean, I mean and like i said you guys have like you know young kids and stuff like that i don't know i think we, you know we maybe will table this for another discussion but like i i exactly what anthony said i have like, that's the thing that i am mostly concerned about is you know how those, how the media can be manipulated by algorithms for, you know, um, you know, less than benevolent reasons, and, and how that will slowly, how that can slowly change and erode culture over time, which can be very devastating. It's like it happens very, very, very slow until it happens very fast. You know, and like that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Whether it's Instagram, I think the, the the amount of the amount of stink that people are kicking up about Facebook is warranted but that's like our generation grew up on that stuff and kind of came up on it and got really large right but the i think that's a big head fake for people so that they so that people don't look at instagram because i go on instagram i just go like what this is the most i don't know what's going on in my feed but it's just bizarre behavior to me just bizarre behavior and it's be, it's it's being normalized and i just go this is just not good and specifically, you know, for like, you know, people who have young kids and, and particularly young girls, it really affects them in very bad ways. Yeah. So I go, you know, maybe we'll leave that for the next discussion, guys, but we've hit our wall. I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk and uh, anybody that joined us for the first time. I hope you will come back and listen to us again.